Before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that we have some new pieces of merch that we wanted to introduce. We have a new t-shirt. It's the Paul Revere shirt. Paul Revere on horseback saying, He gave him the knife. <laughs> it was previously only available at our live dates, but now it's available at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. You're going to want that shirt. It was drawn by Jess Gupta, my friend who told the original story about he gave him the knife. The person who said he gave him the knife originally on our podcast. So it all comes full circle. What else? Well, in honor of finally reaching the episode 25 on our podcast, we're also very happy to introduce our very first pieces of merch for babies. Yes. Babies come with hats, Toby tells us, and therefore we decided to make some baby hats. You can finally have a baby hat. It's a nice gender neutral white hat that says what's next on it. And in addition to the baby hat, we've also got West Wing Weekly onesies and kids' tees. The onesies and the kids' tees answer President Bartlett's question, what's next? They say, I'm what's next. That's right. You can get all of this stuff at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. We're really excited for you to see it. And there's just a two-week window here, folks. So jump on that new merch right away. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. And now... On to our episode. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Well, every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to see it. So if you're hiring, check out ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter will blow your mind. And right now... It'll blow your mind for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. Check it out. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly, where it is a very special and exciting day. <laughs> a very special episode of Blossom. I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And I'm Joshua Molina. You may know Joshua Molina from such things as this episode. <laughs> oh, man. Is there going to be a lot of this? How did it feel to watch yourself on screen for the first time? I'm almost embarrassed to admit I had butterflies in my stomach when I watched it. That's great. And it wasn't nerves or anything. It was literally like I was tying in organically to the excitement of that job and getting that job. I didn't expect it at all. But yeah, that was like a very special time of my life. And as I started to watch it, I guess got like chills. You had a Proustian moment. Yeah, exactly. You're transported. That's great. In this episode, of course, we're talking about Game On. It's episode six from season four. It was written by Aaron Sorkin and Paul Redford. It was directed by Alex Graves. And it first aired on October 30th, 2002. This episode is a famous one because it features President Bartlett debating... Governor Ritchie. There's also some stuff about Kamar. There's some stuff about Toby and Andy. But the real headline <laughs> is that babyface Joshua Molina makes his first appearance as Will Bailey, who's running the Horton Wild campaign from a mattress store in Newport Beach. Will! Will? Uh, it's good to see you. I'll be with you in just a second. Darren and he and goes up against Sam Seaborn. Yeah. I'm realizing also... I characterize myself as an actor who doesn't love to watch his own work, which wasn't the case always. But now I'm realizing I just like watching old work because I look younger. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed watching this episode. And I suspect 15 years from now, I will enjoy watching Scandal. 
That's interesting. For me, I have a hard time going back to old work of mine because I find it a bit embarrassing. I feel like if only I knew then what I knew now, maybe that would be better. It probably wouldn't be better. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I was thoroughly pleased with my own work. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I was feel like as well. Cat out of the bag. I feel like people are expecting me to be horribly uh, critical of myself or self-deprecating. And I'm sure those moments will come. But I, I actually think I'm pretty good on the show. You don't think that there's an equal number of people who might be expecting you to be... Possibly. I just figure... The opposite? Perhaps. You know, perhaps <laughs> perhaps I'm not self-aware enough to have a sense of uh, what the perception of me is. I just I think, think you've worked your magic on your brand that either could be an acceptable expectation. Yeah, you're probably right. I think because my Twitter bio is, hi, I ruined the West Wing. Right. That there's a misconception that I think I was not good on the West Wing. Mm. And that's not it. It's really more of a hat tip to those that believe I ruined the West Wing or right. that Will did or the character went down or that I sucked. But... It's more of a howdy than I'm one of you. <laughs> Later on in this episode, we're going to be joined by a special guest, Joshua Molina. <laughs> it's a good episode of uh, The West Wing, I think. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's an epic one. This opening is incredible. The crisis of confidence and this bet that everyone has played on poor Toby. I don't understand. I was on the helicopter with him earlier this morning and I'm telling you, he's second guessing himself. He's revising answers in his Leo, head. I know. What? I don't. When I left him, he was ready. I don't understand. He's ready. You can see. Oh, it was fantastic. I wrote in, what did I write in big letters? I wrote fantastic opener, especially because <laughs> watching, even this is my first episode ever, so I'm, I'm sure I've seen it more than once. I still didn't remember how the opener worked. And <laughs> I didn't realize going into the Oval that they were in fact tricking Toby. So this is great. So when you, when it was finally revealed, did you then go back to the seeds that had been planted previously? For example, you know, you got a $10 bill in there on your clipboard. Yeah, I owe it to someone. I didn't go back and watch, but yes, I thought back to it, yes, certainly. That's what, yeah. Although the funny part is what she's saying is she knows she's going to lose right. the bet. Right, yes. <laughs> so like, why, did, why didn't she just take the other side of the bet? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's probably a Toby Schadenfreude tax. <laughs> there you go. They're all willing to pay. Tobenfreude. <laughs> Schadentoby. There's a line here that Leo says. A smart guy said the presidential elections are won and lost on one square foot of real estate. Talking about this crisis of confidence that the president is experiencing as he's trying to trick Toby. And, you know, this whole game is mental. And it turns out that line comes from Eli Addy ah. by way of Paul Begala. Huh. Here's an interesting story. This is what I got from Eli. Yeah, you tell the moment. story. I'll be the judge of whether it's interesting or not. <laughs> Eli said that back when he was working for Al Gore, back in the late 90s, Paul Begala gave him some advice on how to make Al Gore feel comfortable around him and how to show that he was going to be a good team member. The way Eli put it, he counseled me on how to talk to Gore and how to show Gore that I had his back. And I'm quoting now from Eli's email. I remember him saying that Gore's headspace, his state of mind, his feeling of confidence were everything to the campaign. Paul pointed to his head and said, presidential campaigns are won or lost on one square foot of real estate, which I thought was one of the most profound and insightful things I'd ever heard about politics and something Paul was passing on with a great sense of importance. So when I got to working on Game On, I wanted to put that in a draft of something for Aaron. So first I called Paul to ask his permission to borrow such an important teaching of his. Paul Begala had no memory of ever saying it. <laughs> it was just something he made up at random. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that's awesome. It was just something he made up in the moment. That is, in fact, an interesting story. <laughs> that's very funny. You know, what? Maybe watching this opening and that discussion and that phrase made me think it was interesting because I was trying to lead or trying to get Ron Klain in our discussion about debate prep last mm. episode to talk about handling yes. the candidate. And he kind of bridled it there. He certainly didn't like the word, but as presented here, and I'm not saying this is, would be more realistic than <laughs> right. what he has to say. And that anecdote you just shared suggests that there is an aspect to it of trying to get your guy in the right headspace. And that that's, you know, or as Paul Begala would have said, uh, that's the major part of it. Right. Yeah. You think about all the mental work that the boxing coach does, you know, all the things they say, it's so much more than just physical conditioning and sparring. Right. I mean, of course, extrapolating it, that is a pretty good saying for a lot of life and a lot of things we do and many endeavors that headspace you're in. It's a big part of getting through life. Mm -hmm. It's a great cold open. You mentioned CJ saying it feels like a foregone conclusion. She knows she's going to lose the bet. I feel like this episode is all about foregone conclusions, or really just one foregone conclusion, which is that the president is going to win the debate. This is the episode in which we're going to witness the debate. But really, from that moment, you know, it's going to happen before the titles come up. Toby is still a little bit spinning from from the prank that's been played on him. But right before they uh, cut to the titles, he says, he's ready. But you didn't think there was any chance, I mean, asking you to think back, put yourself in the headspace of the first time you've seen this may be nigh on impossible. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it felt to me like it could, although I sort of remembered how it went too. But in construction, it could have been a horrible hubristic disaster. Right. They could have gotten Uncle Fluffy. Right. And they there are these little head feints like that of moments where there's maybe some doubt, how's it going to go? But I, I think the real thrust of it starts from the cold open. There isn't real suspense. It's just a matter of how much of a blowout is it going to be? Uh, the fact that Toby, of the turnaround three times and spit, you know, superstition, will actually say he's ready. You know, and, and then later he says to CJ, I think you're going to enjoy yourself tonight. I wouldn't have minded a muttered poo-poo. <laughs> You'd think, with all the superstition among that crew. Yeah, I think it would have been appropriate. But, you know, actually, just to jump way ahead for a moment, I like, too, that Dr. Bartlett, that Abby realizes that it's all about headspace and where he needs to be. There was a lot of juice in that tie. It was like in the last seconds, just the energy getting me out on stage. And he's saying to her, you know, the it was not so much superstition with the whole Josh Ty thing, but that there was an energy to it. And there right. was an Im immediacy and an urgency. And so she cuts his tie in half. It's kind of brilliant. Like, it's it's just what he needed. And he even realizes, even though at first, you know, he acts like, have you gone mad? Like, this is insane. And they're rushing. It's very well staged and shot. But he even gives her a little pat on the butt. <laughs> like, he, he, he's thanking her. He yeah. knows that she gave him the little, <clears throat> the little zets he needed going into it my friends and i call a little pat on a butt a good game oh and so it makes sense that in an episode called game on and with all of them saying game on to the president that he gives her a little good game ah very good game <laughs> there are some great sing-along moments going back to that moment of um where toby says i think you're going to enjoy yourself cj says if the president shows up in the last debate for the last job that he'll ever have in his life, she says, I think it could be a sight to see. I mean, a sight to see. Every time when she says that second, I mean, a sight to see. You sing along. Everybody, anyone who's listening to this episode, raise your hand if you 
said those words long with CJ <laughs> the way that I did. And then now explain to the people around you why you just raised your hands. It's making me feel like we should create a The West Wing Minus One. There used to be albums. It was called Music Minus One. And so you would play the clarinet and you would be the, you know, the rest of the orchestra is right. on the record. And Music Minus One, or there's a singing part that was missing. And we could, you know, that would we, be don't, great. We, don't, we don't have the licensing rights, but West Wing Minus One, where you fill in certain parts, would be kind of great. I mean, we could really do West Wing karaoke. Yeah, exactly. That's really what it is. Yeah. Even when we were at the ATX Festival and they played just the cold open from episode one, I looked around just because I knew it was going to happen. And at the time when we got to this part of the cold open, so many people quietly, it wasn't Rocky Horror Picture Show, but so many people said, sudden arboreal stop. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Maybe at some of our live events, we can encourage some of this. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see some cosplay, (laughs) which is, of course, his chief of staff play. You, everybody has to come as Leo. <laughs> oh. Very good. You throw goldfish at the screen. Mm-hmm. Oh, back to the moment where they give the president the new tie and he rushes out. And there's a great CJ Prattfall there. Did you catch it? Oh, as she kind of goes down in the hall? Yes. As they're all rushing out, she takes a stumble. It's terrific. But my favorite part is the laugh makes me fall, but then her recovery is incredible because... After that, she's sort of trying to smooth herself out. But as part of her smoothing herself out, she keeps touching the president's hair. (laughs) There's, you know, six sets of hands all trying to get him ready. And she's sort of reaching in and just touching part of his head. It's really funny. She's a brilliant physical comedian. She really is. This is a weird one. But for some reason, for days after I watched this episode in preparation for this, the first time, I just kept having the phrase, you're leveraging the mastico stuck in my head. (laughs) Jordan says, Kumar's leveraging the Mastika. And I don't know why. It just, again, partly my sleep-deprived state, but the phrase just... (laughs) This just happened to me when I was taking French in school. Sometimes French words or phrases. I remember playing basketball and having French phrases looped in my head. And I'd be like, just stop trying to reason with my brain. Stop saying that over and over again so I can concentrate. So when you get punchy, you have uh, West Wing earworms and... Yeah, I was working here in the studio yesterday, and I just kept saying, leveraging the Mastico at (laughs) random moments for no good reason. I have seen this episode a lot. Let's go to Mattress World. Ah, yes. My first scene. Not the first scene I shot, but my first scene in the episode. Okay, hold your horses before we get to you. Okay, look, I'm going to let you host. (laughs) You tell me. Danica McKellar. Yes. Guest stars in this episode. This is a big deal. She was wonderful. And I think Aaron was quite the uh, Wonder Years fan. I think this is a big deal for him. Is this why Snuffy Walden scores the West Wing? It wouldn't surprise me. I should probably ask. We should pose that question to Aaron. Uh, Could well be. That's what I thought. Danica plays a character named Elsie Snuffin. It's worth noting that the real name of actress Kayla Blake, who played Kim on Sports Night, is Elsie Sniffin. Is that, that can't be a coincidence, right? Wow. Miniature golf part two. Okay. <laughs> of course it's not a coincidence. Okay. <laughs> Wait, you think deep in his subconscious. Right. I see, yeah. 
I thought you were suggesting there could possibly be no connection whatsoever. No, no. Certainly there's a connection in Aaron's brain. Yes. I would have to believe with a name like Elsie Sniffin and Elsie Snuffin. That's got to be a conscious decision, but you never know. I've been surprised by some of the things that he's told us in the past. The fact that he didn't realize that John Gallagher had been in the West Wing after having done an entire season of the newsroom is the only reason why I thought... You have a good point. How is it acting opposite Danica McKellar? Had you met before? Uh, No, I'd never met her before. She was fun to work with, play off of. I love the moment in the store where the little girls make the sign. This is another moment from the episode that has stayed with me. I remember watching this episode and, you know, listening to the little girls read the sign. It doesn't matter who you vote for, make sure you vote. And I was like, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And then Will Bailey says, I think it does matter who you vote for. What if it said, no matter who you vote for, make sure you vote? And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so brilliant. That's so smart. I, of course, as you could probably guess, uh, was hung up on my desire to have Will correct the grammar. Yes. And say, uh, no, what really should say is no matter whom you vote for. <laughs> I can't imagine that having received this gift of a role that I brought that up with Aaron directly, I think I mentioned it to someone on set and they all looked at me like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah, you're not adding an M. This is where I discovered the first difference between me and Will Bailey, that Will Bailey is more expansive of heart and less pedantic than I. (laughs) It really rubbed me the wrong way. I'm actually stopping to fix the poster, (laughs) but I leave the grammar. I leave the uh, solecism. Yes. The real heart of the message. Oh, yeah. No, I get that. (laughs) No, I understand what you're saying. And of course, you're right. Mm -hmm. But it's still a little bit makes me... I have an inner wince when I watch it. Mm. Speaking of inner winces. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Senor winces. Yes. (laughs) Speaking of old King Wenceslas, (laughs) I felt the hand of uh, King Wenceslas in a few moments in this episode. I am sad to say. There are parts of this episode upon revisiting that did not age well. Mm. Well, I mean, that includes me. (laughs) I was specifically thinking of a few moments where, in professional context, people keep talking about how attractive women are. Hmm. In the first exchange between Sam and Will Bailey. Oh, about Elsie. About Elsie. I met your assistant. She's funny. She's very, she's attractive, too. Oh, I'm not being inappropriate. I have an assistant? Yes, he was. I mean, the answer is yes. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, you are. (laughs) Indeed. I especially like, though, is that at no point do you ever actually make the connection that he's talking about Elsie, because he describes her as your assistant. Right. And I say, I have an assistant. Right. And she's off screen by the time this happens. So later on in the episode, you talk about Elsie as if he has no idea who she is. And for a second, I thought, wait, but Sam's already met her. And he's told you that he's met her. And then I realized, no, no, right. But you don't... Could have been someone else. You didn't know who he was talking about in the first place. Right. So it makes sense that you would reintroduce her. Yeah. There's also, there's some weirdness altogether about who Elsie is, you know, without any spoilers, we're going to get a little bit more information about her that I think... We, we, they retconning, a little retconning, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. But we we can We can address at the time. (laughs) Exactly. At the correct time. And one of the things I remember about filming that scene, the conversation with Sam Seaborn, I don't think this is going to happen a lot in future episodes because this is what I remember about every scene because I don't think I'll remember anything. I have a lot of memories of this episode, again, I think, because it was so 
important to me right and in my career and this whole so you know uncharacteristically i remember a lot of it very clearly and one thing i remember in that scene that conversation at the desk that i shot with rob Lowe was i stop and i take an aspirin at some point yes and i kept rushing it and alex graves kept saying josh just take an aspirin and i said do you know what I feel like I'm in a three-act opera about aspirin because I'm so, I've done a lot of things, but I come up in the Aaron Sorkin school and anything that's a pause where no one's speaking, it just doesn't feel right to me. And he kept saying, look, I promise you when we cut it, it's not going to feel self-indulgent because I felt like, I felt like I was taking a five-minute break <laughs> to take an aspirin. I was like, dude, I can't do it this slowly. And and I realized, in the, and then watching it today, like you don't even see, you hear it. It's a sound effect. You don't even actually see the aspirin bottle. You mm-hmm. Clearly, I'm taking something. Right. I remember you telling this story abstractly. I didn't realize it was this episode or this moment. So I didn't think about your anxiety about this moment, but I did think about how well done I thought it was. I thought that was a nice detail that I like how Will kind of doesn't have time for Sam. Yeah, I like that too. You got the sense of priorities. He's, right. You know, he, he knows who he is, obviously, and he's a big macher, and so he's got to sit and have the moment, but he's not going to be slowed in terms of what his, uh, the urgency of his own priorities. Right. And he knows too the kind of message that Sam is bringing. Sure. Even just this exchange, the very first lines, Will says, Hi. Hi, Sam Seaborn. Sure. Will Bailey, you want to come inside? It's not even, yeah, great to meet you or anything. It's like, sure. Yes, of course, I know who you are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the delivery, it's great. One of the things I was watching with new eyes, not that I was unaware of this, is just how beautiful a character and how classic an Aaron Sorkin creation Will Bailey is. And I was able to sort of sit back and watch it, even just lines like, The metaphor alone knocks me down. Right. There's so many great little things. Things that if I were watching for the sake of the podcast, I I might even criticize as like, uh, you know, sometimes I complain when he makes our heroes too much of heroes. Uh Uh-huh. But when it's me, I'm like, oh, man, look, he gave me that, he gave me that. And there, there are a lot of great little spots in this episode where I'm like, all right, dude, he's, he's doing his best mm-hmm. to bring me in in a way that viewers would embrace the character. <laughs> Tell me about your approach to even just these lines, because there is such a specificity in the delivery. I mean, those first few lines that you say to Sam, I do love the delivery. And like I said, I get this whole picture of what's going on with this character and and where he's at and his relationship to Sam and really the administration in that. And it feels very far from any kind of arbitrary acting choice because you have to convey all that. So do you remember how you got to that place? I'd love to have a, just to serve up a juicy answer to that. The candid answer is no, I really don't. I feel like when I read Aaron's stuff, I know what he wants from me. I know how he wants it to sound. And with really good writing, you know, you can do that elemental thing of acting, which is, you know, you have an intention. Like Basically, like what we were discussing before, Will Bailey has an agenda. He knows why Sam is here. He knows ultimately that it's going to try to get him to stop doing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And so, so the intention is to kind of just blow through it, to not pause long enough for the reality to seep in. So he's going to keep moving and he's going to keep the office going. He's going to get out of there as soon as he can with Sam just trailing behind him. So I just felt like it was written with that clear intent. You didn't have a a conversation explicitly about how to say those things. No, I mean, it very rarely comes down to anything like that, honestly, in discussion. Usually, you know, we'd rehearse the scene 
block it so that it feels right to everyone and so that it feels like the story of the scene is being told. And then, uh, you know, sometimes you discuss beats, you discuss moments, but you don't usually get down to the point of, I want it delivered like this. You know, like if, if, right. if something's wrong, if, if you're getting micro-directed on that level, something bad is missing. Hmm. Did you do a table read for this? Do you remember? Well, you know, I remember my very first table read. I don't remember that it was for this episode, but I suspect it must have been. In my mind, I know the very first scene I shot for the West Wing was the Will Bailey press conference. I know that for sure. But I guess, I can't really remember, but it must have been prior to that that we did a table read of this episode before, you know, that's how they would do it before any shooting had begun. Because I do remember walking into that room. It's the Roosevelt room that we see on camera Mm. uh, all the time. And that big table and everyone's sitting there. And then in another outer ring around that table are all the department heads and all the writers and the producers. And it's a big room and a lot of people. And I remember very, very clearly walking in and, you know, I I wasn't overly daunted. I was psyched. I was really psyched to be there. And I'm sure I said hi to Brad and I'm trying to think uh, whether I knew anybody else. But I just remember John Spencer walking up to me. Hey, how you doing? John Spencer introducing himself and saying, I just loved you on sports night. And I don't know whether it's true. And I feel like I've heard a version of this story from almost everyone else who walked in the door, Mm -hmm. that John was just that guy who would go out of his way to be warm, to make you feel good, to make you feel like you belong there, say something nice. And it's something I've tried to, and I'm sure I'm guilty not of always honoring his memory this way, but I try to do it when I'm a regular on something and not the new guy, I try to remember what it feels like to be, because you're walking into a well-oiled machine when you do a guest spot on any show or when you're new on a show. And this was the creme de la creme of well-oiled machines. It's the thickened fourth season, having won Best Drama, I mean, three seasons. This was like, this is high level. So it was very kind of him to search me out, walk over to me. I feel like I had just taken three steps into the room to put me at ease. I thought that was very, very sweet. That's funny that you mentioned that that's how you feel like you greet newcomers to a production, because I spoke to Bradley Whitford (laughs) about when you two first Uh, started working together on this, and he told a story about when he met you on A Few Good Men. I was thrilled because I had worked with Josh in A Few Good Men on Broadway. Here's a little story. Going into a Broadway play is a terrifying thing to do. You get what is called a put-in. Basically, you're rehearsing for two weeks with the stage manager, and then you have one run-through with the cast who does not want to be there. And then you go on, and you're in front of, I don't know, what is it, 2,000 people or whatever it was. And it's the first Broadway play I've I've ever done, and it's like you're jumping on a train, and you're terrified the entire time. And I go out for this court scene. I was playing a lawyer, and I open up my briefcase. I'm facing the audience, and it is completely pasted with the most horrific pornography. <laughs> and that was when I met Josh. And, and Josh was playing something in that. I learned later he almost got fired for putting itching powder in the soldier who had to stand still in the tower um no it's incredible it is a perverse art that he has cultivated but i was thrilled because josh is a blast oh yeah that was a little prank 
Yeah. Yes. That was on stage. That was during a performance. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, first of all, in fairness, I hadn't met John Spencer yet. <laughs> so you didn't have his example yet, too. Right. I'm telling you, I Follow. learned a lesson. So let's I chronologically, see. let's understand that the, all right. yeah, the, the play took place long before I met John Spencer on the West Wing. <laughs> <laughs> I have about 10 minutes with Brad. Oh, dear Lord. I should have known you'd do something. But before we play that, I want to just connect. <laughs> it's the story about taking the aspirin is really funny because I want to jump right into this one story that Brad told. Uh-oh. Here's another bit from our conversation. Did I ever tell you the drug story? No, I don't think so. This is later on. We were shooting the Camp David episode, and we had been shooting like 20 hours. And there was someone on the set who will go unnamed who said, you know what's amazing? I told my doctor I was going to be shooting. I was really tired. And my doctor told me about there's a drug called ProVigil. And it is a drug that just keeps you awake. Truck drivers take it. I think people in the army take it. And I was mentioning it to a friend and a friend gave me one. And three of us were looking at this guy with a very powerful drug in his hand, a pill. He had a single pill. And he said, yeah, this is it. He gave me this pill. And apparently it just keeps you up forever. This was the end of like a 19 hour day. Josh walks into the room, doesn't hear what we're talking about, sees the pill in this person's hand, grabs the pill, oh, no. goes, oh, drugs, I love drugs, and takes the pill. <laughs> it was truly one of the funniest, most amazing things I've ever seen. It could have been anything, <laughs> anything. He took this pill, which like kept him up forever, and I like blasted, I don't know how I got, I like got into his hotel room. He had like three computers on. He was just like furiously gambling online. <laughs> anyway, uh, that was one of the funniest. Mo- and obviously kids don't do that at home. But he just like walked right in and goes, oh, drugs. I love drugs. <laughs> that is entirely true. <laughs> I've never seen anybody laugh harder. <laughs> When I took whatever pill he was holding, and without asking for it to be identified, <laughs> I took it. I took the water he was holding, downed it, and kind of walked away. Which I thought, I thought, just thought it would be funny, and I figured, yeah, how bad could it be? That's a self prank, really. I mean, it's a prank. Yeah, it's a goof. For more thoughts from Bradley Whifford, here's the rest of the conversation. So, my question for you: Yes, do you remember the moment when you found out that Josh was going to be on The West Wing? Yes. Bring me back to that moment. Where were you? I took the news. You know, I took it in. No, actually, I'm kidding. I was thrilled. I was actually thrilled. I knew Josh. I knew what we were getting. I have a lot of respect for Josh. I think he's, you know, done a lot with the limited gifts he's been given. I'm kidding. I, 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 I can't even do this. I love Josh. Josh is truly one of my favorite. Uh, I, I would like to be meaner to him, but I can't. Josh genuinely feels lucky to be working. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a joy on the set. I've said this before. Basically, directing Richard Schiff is like trying to get, you know, a cat out of a tree. You know, it's any discussion... <laughs> With a a director is complicated and, you know, fraught with very deep feelings. 
basically, I don't know if he still does it, but all the way through West Wing, whenever a director said anything to Josh, he would mumble, I don't care. Right. <laughs> Which was sort of his mantra. And I aspire to that kind of detachment. For this episode, for Game On, the two of you don't actually have any scenes together. Thank God. Did you have any interaction that first day that he was he was on the show? Or were you completely you know, separate? I'm because- sure he's like, you know, slapped the sides out of my hand in passing by, which he does to sort of everybody. Or he set, you know, my iPod, you know, to Mandarin. I'm <laughs> sure he did something. It is a bizarre darkness within his veneer of joviality or is joviality the word is that the word sure if you want to call josh jovial i'm not sure that i would go that far i hate to say this but i love working with josh i hate his acting but i love working (laughs) with josh i guess you must have done the table read together yeah i think we've done the table read i don't know what year is this of that goddamn show this was in 2002 so this is season four yeah well, uh, look, as much fun as Josh is on a set, you do sort of feel like the show business angel of death has come to the door. I mean, <laughs> you know you're on the the downside of whatever show you're doing. No, that's not true. I'm just, see, I can't even do it. <laughs> well, I'm curious how the news was relayed to the rest of the cast. Was it sort of like a guest star role where you just find out someone says, hey, this part that's going to be in this next script, that's going to be played by Josh Molina and everybody and says, okay, fine, and move on. Or was there already some sense, even with that first episode, that Josh was going to have a longer relationship with the show? I was informed by a priest who came to my house. <laughs> He read you your Josh writes. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, Josh is very open about it. I, I don't even remember. I think he, you know, sort of initially came in and was playing this character. And was this going to be a regular? Knowing Josh, Josh would come in going, boy, I hope I become a regular. I mean, there's no art to his <laughs> kind of begging for work. <laughs> With Aaron or, uh, you know, or directly to Tommy. Aaron, of course, loves Josh. And so you knew that Aaron was getting an instrument, albeit a flutophone, (laughs) that he was comfortable with. (laughs) It was pretty clear to me early on that Josh was going to fill that void. Right. I mean, in the end of this episode, Sam gives him his tie and tells him to keep it. Oh, is that what happens? I should yeah. watch this. <laughs> Which feels symbolic. Yeah, it feels symbolic. I don't know. At this point, did we know that Rob was not coming back? I don't know. That's what I'm wondering. Well, you would think that somebody on the show would know that. <laughs> my memory, and I may be wrong, my memory is that they knew that that was going to happen. Right. Because I don't think he would do that to Rob. You know, and there's an uneasiness. You get very close like Das Boat Close, Uh (laughs) doing a one-hour series. You know, it's unnerving, you know, when somebody leaves. I think we all were confused by Rob leaving. Mm -hmm. I certainly at one point said to him, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think that you might have been the only other cast member who had worked with Josh. Certainly Aaron and Tommy had worked with him on Sports Night, but did it ever fall to you? To explain him? Yes, exactly. I think I may have insufficiently warned Allison that this guy was incredibly funny, but would probably make her cry. 
which happened on several occasions. <laughs> and n- nobody loves Josh more than Allison. Actually, I hope somebody does. <laughs> but she loves him, but he, he'll bring you to tears. He'll find out what your insecurity is and just joyously exploit it in public. And my lifelong task with Josh is just learning to understand his need to behave in the way he does and not personalize it. It's almost like a kind of Al-Anon boot camp with him. (laughs) There's an episode of Sports Night where the set is possibly being haunted by a uh, Greek ghost, like a trickster, ancient figure. Right. And Josh, in his role, sort of explains the motives of this character. And it always seemed to me like Aaron might have written that plot based on what Josh does, too. The idea is that this ghost provides humility. Are you saying that Josh provides humility? It's impossible to really get too wrapped up in your own ego around him because he'll always do something to deflate it. Until you watch him act and then your ego inflates again. No, absolutely. Josh is always walking around. You know, you see him do it on Scandal, too. You know, he's sort of, you know, keeping everybody honest and reminding everybody else how lucky they are, you know, at least in terms of looks. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If it gets weird, he'll make fun of the weird. If it gets dark, he'll make fun of the dark and get it out. Okay, let's take a little break for a second. We'll come back. We'll circle back to Will Bailey. There's another wincy moment. Yes. Where CJ's talking to Albie Duncan, and they have this great conversation, and she keeps telling him, uh, still, I think the other answer is better. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's (laughs) a good scene. It's so good. I don't remember the wincy part. You know, she says, still, I think the first answer's our winner. So, can I find an attractive aid and have her bring you some Schweppes bitter lemon? And then she calls Carolyn. And then she calls Carolyn, and it's just icky. Yeah, but this does it make you feel meta icky, or within the? I mean, within the world, I think they are. I think CJ knows that it's icky. She's handling her client at that point. This is the kind of thing. Maybe this. Maybe he's a little icky, and that's the kind of thing he responds to. So I don't know. That I think is splitting hairs. Well, I don't think it's splitting hairs. I think there's a distinction to be made, but maybe you just think it's the show being icky. See, I felt like within that world, it's just CJ going like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, indulge this guy. I don't know. Maybe. It grosses me out. I, I think certainly within the context of everything that's coming out, but even otherwise, I remember the first time that I watched this, there's actually a coincidence with what's happening right now. There were some reports, I don't know if you saw this, about George H.W. Bush oh, yes. being handsy with uh, several women and they issued a statement and everything. And I suddenly remembered when I was in college, a friend of mine who was also in a all female singing group went and sang for George HW Bush, who was a Yale alum. And she showed me the photo that they took the group photo. And she said, in this photo, he has his hand on my butt. No, all those years ago. Yeah. Wait, when did you graduate? 2000. And I I said, really? And she said, yes. And not just me. His other hand is on the butt of another girl on the other side of him. And it was just so gross and creepy. Oh, I'm with you. That's that's disgusting. That's horrible. I'm just saying maybe Albie Duncan is like George H.W. Bush, and he's a little bit of a dirty old man. And judge her, if you will, but she's kind of indulging that. I, I will judge her. Yeah, it was well you should. I think actually the companion scene to this little conversation 
I don't know if it quite makes me wince, but I think it defies credibility, which is that in the spin room after the debate, Albie Duncan is being interviewed and he's trying to give his 10-word answer on free trade and CJ does him the favor. I mean, doesn't he also know that Chinese political prisoners are going to be sewing soccer balls together with their teeth, whether we sell them cheeseburgers or not? I mention this because the president just reminded us that complexity isn't a vice. Right. Can you imagine (laughs) if Sarah Huckabee Sanders actually said that on camera to somebody? Like, it just is not a a credible moment. I get, you know, I get kind of caught up in the moment of like, oh, she's, you know, giving him, she's throwing him a bone and letting him speak, you know, to the complexity of the issue. But the thing she actually says, can you imagine how the headlines? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All for the sake of nuance. Right. (laughs) Okay. While we are on the subject of gripes, okay, you already alluded to this. The real heroism of Will Bailey is a little bit over the top in that he's doing this Herculean task of managing a campaign of a candidate who's winning in a place that Democrats are unwinnable. And he still finds the time. And the candidate dies. <laughs> if the candidate were alive, it would still be a, an incredible task to have to manage that campaign. The candidate is dead and he's still, and he's basically, he's running the show. He's a spokesperson. And then on top of that, he also happens to be the author of a speech that is so great that everyone is knocked out by it on the very day that Sam happens to be meeting with him for the very first time. Absolutely. And he's also cleaning his oven. He's a multitasker. It's uh, advertising from my childhood. (laughs) It's exactly what I was saying earlier. These are all things that I would fault were they written about someone else's character. As I watched them, I was delighted at the heroism. No, but, but you're right. This is the kind of thing where I usually go, it's too good to be true, like too, too much. But of course, since it was my character, I just, every time the Gabe Tillman speech got mentioned, I was thinking, I wrote that. <laughs> I wrote that. <laughs> I like both of these details as stories about characters and even about the same character, but to have them both happen at the same time on the same day just felt a little too much. Yep. It's a little bit too much. One too many things. I actually think of a line from the West Wing about, um, you know, a bill that's a Christmas tree where that people just keep hanging ornaments onto it. It's called a Christmas tree because they, people just keep hanging things ah, onto it. It feels like that. That's good. Yeah. Well, there you go. Also, um, are we up to the press conference? Not yet, but let's go to there. Let's go to there. Jeez. I want to go to there. I'm Liz Lemon now. Yeah, exactly. Very good. I want to go to there. <laughs> that was the very first scene I filmed for this episode or for the West Wing ever. Press conferences are hard because basically you have all the dialogue and, you know, every now and then someone yells a question at you and then you have another chunk. So my memory is really, really wanting the first day to go well and really, really drilling my lines in a way that I usually don't. I'm usually very, I learn dialogue very, very quickly. Scandal 90% of the time. I learn it the morning of as I'm sitting in the makeup chair. But this one, I t- it was like homework. I was like, I'm going to show up and I'm going to have this thing done dead to rights. And I just remember right. that. I was also delighted this entire episode to be directed by Alex Graves, who had directed me in five episodes of Sports Night. So I felt super put at ease mm. by Alex. But also in this episode, I get to utter yet another, I think, classic 
certainly a classic Will line and a classic Aaron line altogether, I think, that people still will say back to me as if I wrote it or as if I had anything to do with it. There are worse things in the world than no longer being alive. Yes. It's a great one. Which is a pretty freaking great line of dialogue. And this is one of those things where, I mean, I devoured the script. When I got the first script of The West Wing that I knew I was going to be in, I was super psyched to read it. And I got to that scene and I was like, oh my God, I get to say this. I mean, it's not just the line. It's like watching an alley-oop because the line comes from the reporter. What's your point? You see the ball sailing through the air and then it gets dunked. Right. Well, that's what, that's my feeling with Aaron is and uh, great writing. He does all the work. I love the way that he parcels out these great moments of dialogue, really as dialogue between two people. You know, that it isn't just someone has written a great speech. It's not just a matter of monologues, you know, or oration. That line lands because it has this springboard to, to jump off of. Yeah, very well articulated. He's a great writer of dialogue. Speaking of your fantastic preparation, oh no, I have some thoughts from Rob Lowe oh, no. on his first scenes with you. This is like, this is your life. It is. This is your first episode. This, this one I have to hear now? I had not met Josh. I obviously knew who he was and knew he was sort of in the Sorkin company of players. Mm-hmm. But I felt like everybody on the show knew Josh but me. So I was excited to meet him and see what all the fuss was about. And what did you think when you first met him? I was underwhelmed. (laughs) (laughs) He was totally as advertised, so smart, really funny, and just clearly knew how to play the music, you know, which usually on the show, they did such a good job of casting that almost everybody that came in fit in seamlessly. But every once in a while, you'd have somebody who'd come in and you'd be like, do you know what show you're on <laughs> he, he was like he was there forever right that's lovely of you to actually go out of your way to talk to people and very kind words from rob he was couldn't have been nicer to me in terms of you know the unspoken situation of kind of passing the baton on to me you know it was unclear i mean i'll tell the story and you know at the point of filming this first episode i knew the possibility of staying on as a regular was there and that we were going to make do a few episodes or I think what was discussed was six and see how the fit, how it fit, how the fit fit. And people knew that Rob was leaving already. Yes, that's right. I think at this point it was, he was absolutely leaving. And he went on and did a few good men soon after leaving. So he and Aaron are still on, on very good terms. And whatever it was, he couldn't have been nicer to me. I remember him inviting me into his trailer and he was smoking a big cigar. <laughs> he, was, he was just Rob Lowe on 11. And he was nice and laughing and telling me stories and telling me what to expect and how people are. And it was all incredibly positive and uh, very welcoming. And I, I thought that was uh, very cool. Of him. And I was psyched to be uh, shooting scenes with Rob Lowe. Yeah. I mean, almost all of your scenes in this episode are with Rob Lowe. Yeah. Did you have much interaction with the rest of the cast? on this episode outside of the table read? No, I really, I don't think I did. I think I met everybody at the table read, but I think even there, I don't think I stayed to hobnob too much. My guess is I probably chatted it up with Brad for a little bit, uh, had some laughs and left. Because not only are your scenes so heavily just with Rob and with Danica McKellar, they're on location. Yeah. I even remember, I mean, this is, it's almost like a joke given how poor my memory is. I remember where we shot the bar scene there's a bar in LA on Pico called the San Francisco Saloon. And I still have a little, you know, twinge of memory every time I drive by it. 
like, oh yeah, that's where I shot that scene with Rob. Like it's just the, the whole thing was such a pleasant experience. And then uh, we had that little beach scene where he gives me the tie and that was uh, down in Santa Monica on the beach. And it's fun to shoot on location, but uh, I also remember I was jonesing to make it to the White House. <laughs> right. <laughs> Alex Graves, as you mentioned, directed this episode. And to me, this episode seemed like it had a different visual style than I think we've ever seen on the show before. So much of it is handheld. I'm trying to remember if there have been other moments of handheld. I think there have been, but there haven't been these extended, I mean, entire chunks of this episode, especially in the White House. All these scenes are shot handheld and like the cold open, all this stuff. It felt very different. And my theory is that it was to convey the adrenaline that was being, you know, pumped through everyone's veins as they got ready for this night. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. There's a grittiness, and I think you're right, an adrenaline surge is the right way to put it, to the race. It's a different feeling from governing and being in the White House and daily life there. So the debate has its own look and feel, and the press conference that I give has that handheld jerky kind of, you're just in it. You're like in the mix. And I do think you're right that he chose a different whole kind of visual palette to tell the story of this episode. Yeah, I think it's neat, but I also found it confusing. Oh, you didn't like it? You found it a little jarring? Yeah, much like the camera itself. I was a little shaky on it. <laughs> oh, fair enough. I, I actually like it. I get, I think it worked to tell the specific story of this episode. Well, that's the thing. I don't think that it was poorly done or, or anything like that. I should clarify, I feel ambivalent about it because I think that it does help the feeling. I think it achieves, if that's what he set out to do, if that was the idea, then I think it's achieved. It felt like someone new covering a song that you really love. Interesting, yeah. It's a fertile arena for discussion because television series the end game from the network's point of view and most people involved is to make as many as possible. And to that end, there's a certain comfort food. Right. Sameness. Yes. Where you don't want to venture too far afield because you don't want people going on. Oh, that's not the show I bought into for three and a half seasons. I wanted to, but on quality shows like the West Wing, you also want to get quality directors and quality directors want to push the envelope a little bit. And so I think that sometimes there are sort of growing pains with the style of a show. So for me, this works, but I can understand how it might not sit exactly right to you or take a little adjustment. Right. I think it both works. And also I found it a little jarring, which I think is probably actually what it was supposed to do. Yeah, you're probably right. Let's talk a little bit about the Horton Wild campaign. Sure. There have been real life examples of congressional races where a candidate died before the election and won. This isn't total science fiction by any means. There have been a few. In fact, one thing that's interesting is, so sometimes a candidate will die before the election, then they'll be replaced on the ticket by someone else. Mm -hmm. But there's never been a moment where a candidate has died and, ha and their name has stayed. Remained on the election, and they didn't win. And they didn't win. Interesting. So it's actually not a terrible strategy. Right. I mean, you'll... I mean, you have to be fully committed to the end result <laughs> to go that way. Yeah, because then you'll there'll be a special election, some other sort of moment, but it's sort of like extra innings. You're getting the chance to go into extra innings when you do that. And knowing that that is a trend makes sense to me because you would only keep the name on like, there's so much confidence in that. You know, even as Will says, you know, like, the ideas live on. You have to believe in it so much that you have to really feel like, yes, I'm going to be able to win, 
even without the uh, candidate being physically alive. Well, I think in a, he's tilting at windmills a little bit, and it's a little bit of a stack house approach, which is the ideas are more important ultimately right. than the end result. And that's what he's saying. And he's got an opportunity to keep these worthwhile and relevant ideas out in the marketplace, mm-hmm. um, regardless of the end result. And I do like, I like the anger and will in the bar scene when Sam has the nerve to tell him that he's an embarrassment. It's embarrassing, Will. There's a campaign being waged here, and I'm not embarrassed by it. There are things being talked about, things you believe in, things the White House believes in, and they're only going to be talked about in a blowout, and you know it, and you know there's no glory in it, and you still come here twice and tell me my guy's a joke. There is a specific campaign that I think this might have drawn inspiration from, which is the Mel Carnahan campaign in 2000. In 2000, Mel Carnahan ran against John Ashcroft, who was then a senator, Republican senator. This was in Missouri. And in October, just a few weeks before the election, Mel Carnahan was in a plane crash and he died. Mm -hmm. But he stayed on the ticket. So I got an email through Kathleen Unwin, who handles our sponsorships from Radiotopia. She lives in St. Louis and she has friends who listen to the podcast. And Kathleen connected me with one of her friends, Tony Weish who is the communications director for Mel Carnahan. Get out of here. And his wife, Sarah. Side note, by the way, you may have seen the Halloween costume of the 10-year-old girl who went as mini C.J. Craig. Yes, indeed I did. Oh, no, it's their kid. Tony and Sarah's daughter. Wow, full circle. So here are some thoughts from them. I'm quoting Sarah now. We kept going, oh my God, as we watched. We knew it was obviously inspired by what happened on Mel's campaign, but had forgotten some of the specific things in the episode that seemed like they had been lifted from the actual campaign, but which have never been discussed publicly as far as we know. The one that was most striking was a conversation that took place between Sam Seaborn and Will Bailey. Tony could remember the exact timing. It was probably two weeks before the election, just after the memorial service. But Jim Jordan, who at the time worked for the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, came out to collect a refund check that the DSCC had given the campaign. They needed the money back to reallocate to other races that were now higher priorities. Until the plane crash, the Carnahan-Ashcroft race was the single most competitive race in the country. Hmm. It was the Northam Gillespie of Senate races in 2000. And she continues, while Jim was in the office, he said to Tony, you understand why I have to do this, right? Almost apologetically. Jim was our friend and we talked to him just about every single day. He was really heartbroken for us. Anyway, Tony looked at him and said, yeah, I absolutely understand, but also we're going to win. And we did. Wow. I I remember talking about the Carnahan campaign. I don't remember being let in on this private anecdote. That's quite a story. (laughs) Um, Thanks to Tony and Sarah for that. Yeah. Oh, I should say this. So this is from Tony and Sarah. Tony was the communications director. And on the night of the plane crash, he was the person who read the statement confirming what had happened to the national press. And his wife, Sarah, his now wife at the time was not his wife, was the deputy communications director. How about that? Mm -hmm. And now they have a little mini CJ. We haven't talked about Leo and Jordan and uh, Kumar. Yes. Leveraging the Mastico. Leveraging the Mastico. Let's leverage the Mastico now. Let's. Why not? Would the chief of staff be engaging in such high-level foreign diplomacy? I wonder. I wonder aloud to you. As opposed to, say, the Secretary of State. <laughs> yes, that, that would be <laughs> as my amateur view, that, that maybe who I'd go with. I mean, technically, the Secretary of State kind of works for Leo. Right, but you think maybe in the loop? <laughs> I don't Actually, the truth is, I don't mean this as a sarcastic. I wonder whether this kind of meeting it probably does happen. 
But uh, it was it was interesting. As I kept watching the whole thing unfold, I thought, well, this is like, especially, I mean, he's playing quite a game of brinksmanship and on his own, and he's not even conferring with the president who's actually engaged in the debate at the time. He, he's not taking any phone calls or checking in with the Secretary of State. Like, he's, Leo's, you know, going beast. Yeah. Recently, there was an exchange between Jordan and Leo where Leo called her out for using the phrase cloak and dagger. But this really does feel like cloak and dagger now that you mentioned just this kind of geopolitical crisis potentially being waged between three people, you know, an ambassador, a chief of staff, and just a lawyer. You know, yeah. especially it's just the three of them are... The stakes are rather high. Really high. And if it doesn't go the way Leo thinks it's going to, she's going to have some splaining to do. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question... Does the ambassador to Kamar, Nasir, does he know that the U.S. is responsible for Sharif's death? He has a line where he says, Mr. McGarry, I think we are both men. And we both know there is a charade being enacted here. That's where I thought it was headed when he said that. That's what I thought so. But then he says, I understand Western politics. And I understand President Bartlett is unable to admit Israel's complicity in the death of the Sultan's brother during a close election. And so then I thought, wait, does he genuinely think that Israel did it? Because I thought the whole game here is that it's a misinformation campaign. Yeah, well, I think it's got to be that he knows what really happened. Nobody's going to say it. And so he's going from one second to saying, look, you and I both know the truth. And then going back into playing the game. Otherwise, it doesn't right. really make sense to me. So I think it's just super sly, wink, wink. But then Leo says... Do you think the president's afraid that if he admitted complicity in Sharif's death, he would lose votes in this country? Nasir is saying Israel's complicity, but then Leo you know, says that also takes it as yeah, I know. Yeah. own complicity. So that made it... Yeah, I bumped uh, on that a little bit too. Like, why is, why is he saying it if the other guy's not going to say right, it? Exactly. <laughs> why is Leo saying it? Yeah, there's something slightly off there. Or, you know, Nasir is saying, we know there's a charade. I'm going to speak in the language of the charade. Right. But then Leo snaps out of it. Yeah, he's like, fine. We, okay, it's a charade. But it's not, we're not playing the charade because it would somehow hurt our reputation here domestically. Yeah, I guess Leo just goes full cards on the table. Yeah. That's his move. And then actually I thought it was odd. You know, it's kind of funny, but odd that Jordan's exit line is something about godless infidels. Excuse me? I have a meeting of godless infidels next door. Yes. I was like, why'd she say that? Yeah. That was rude she's i thought she's supposed to be the calm like measured <laughs> right, lawyer right. like why'd you say that that what you just had to be offensive on the like what yep we haven't yet talked about the actual debate no we have not should we turn our attention there do let's do let's hill <laughs> i don't know what to say about it because it's just i feel like it's perfect i, I think so too it's exquisite it defies commentary in some ways Positive or negative? So I think anything positive, I feel like, is gilding the lily, and I have nothing negative to say. Yeah, that's funny. I didn't write down much either, although it's, you know, arguably the highlight <laughs> of this episode. It's right. just kind of perfectly executed. Although, you know, the, the only thing that I thought was funny is, you know, they have the moment, actually, I, and I love this moment, where I think Richie actually says, It's over. You'll be back. Right. Um, and I love that, the whole just sense of that this was the coup de grace and the the election's actually over. But I also had a little bit of a Trump III moment where I felt, <laughs> you know, if not quite to this extent, but watching the debates between Clinton and Trump, like, I was like, okay, well, it's got to be essentially over now, right? Like, right. 
fucking doofus who doesn't understand anything about policy and she couldn't be better prepared. And I was like, well, okay, oh, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if the world has changed or this is just a uh, a nice fiction uh, in the West Wing world where somebody could be knocked out uh, intellectually in one round. That's why I, I asked that question to Ron Klain last time too, was, you know, how do you really determine the victor in a debate? Because I'll say, yeah, that, that person won, I think, but then in the end they lose the election. And yeah. so I guess the answer is when one of the two candidates says to the other, ah, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very rare, but that's the way you can really judge uh, victory. I thought of you, Josh, and your love slash hate when the characters all get to go around and say... Anything. (laughs) (laughs) Then they all say, I serve at the pleasure of the president. Right. I serve at the pleasure of the president. I'll say, this episode is called Game On. I think they say the words Game On a few times too many. It is said a lot. Game On. Game On, boyfriend. Game On. Pretty sure Josh has one. Uh, He does. And that's really the one that I object to most. (laughs) That, That one... Because Brad... (laughs) <laughs> it's after this epic line. 12.6 out of a state budget of 50 billion. I'm supposed to be using this time for a question, so here it is. Can we have it back, please? Game on! It literally sounds like, in his delivery, the beginning of another round of Kung Fu Battle in a video game. <laughs> and then Sam says, strike him out, throw him out. <laughs> Which, hmm. I don't know. The only, uh, as I said, I have nothing negative to say about the moments of the debate, the characters' reactions to some of the stuff around the debate is another matter. (laughs) I really loved CJ's line, though. It's not going to be Uncle Fluffy. This is the source for our lovely moment with Lynn in What's Next. You ain't getting Uncle Fluffy, motherfuckers. What's next? What's next? (laughs) I did think uh, he gave him the tie. He gave him the tie. (laughs) I thought of you watching it. That's great. A lot of Thai work. A lot of three separate Thai mentions in this episode. Penang curry, Masaman curry, <laughs> green curry. Mm-hmm. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> I was mentally combining two moments between Leo and the president when Leo has this really sweet moment where he walks out with the president to say, There's nothing you can do that's not going to make me proud of you. Oh. But that's like a very paternal moment. There's it something is. that just absolutely got to me. I'm glad you remembered that. I made note, but I forgot. That's funny. You know, I we've talked about how the president and Leo play this role of sort of mother and father. And I think many people on the in the cast have said that vibe was echoed on set as well, that Martin Sheen was like the, they were like the parents as well. But I, for some reason, I had this gendered in my mind that Leo was the mom and so when I when this moment happened, I thought it was very maternal, not paternal yeah. for some reason. But I, I liked that they could turn these sort of either paternal or maternal approaches to one another as well. Mm-hmm. It's not just with the staff who are below them. It's such a generous thing to say. You know, there's nothing you can do that's not going to make me proud of you. <laughs> really? Yeah. I love that. But I thought in that moment, as they were walking out of the port- uh, to the portico, I thought, oh, right. I think Leo gives him a kiss on the cheek. And I was thinking, he's going to give him the kiss. <laughs> but that's another moment from another episode. Ah, spoiler alert. No, it already happened. Yeah. <laughs> Things that already happened are still spoiler alerts for me. <laughs> of all the bromances in the West Wing, and there are many. Yes. 
the relationship between Leo and, and, it's and special. Ben, there is no height or depth where they can reach that will ever feel too sentimental or cheesy to me. I'm here for all of it. I'm with you. Down for all of it. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about your origin story. Right on. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace will help you build the site for whatever your idea is. If you've ever had a cool idea for a new website, you can do it with Squarespace. You can showcase your artwork. You can blog. You can publish any content you can come up with. You can sell products and services of all types. We use Squarespace for our own website, thewestwingweekly.com, which by now I'm guessing you've probably seen. If not, you should check it out, thewestwingweekly.com. It's an example of a Squarespace site that was easy to put together and is easy to maintain. Every time we come up with a new idea for the site, it's quickly accomplished. It's true. In fact, I use Squarespace for my own website outside of the West Wing Weekly. It's rishikesh.co. It's my own personal page, and I use Squarespace for that. So check out Squarespace. They help you make it, whatever it is you're trying to make. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial, and then when you're ready to launch, use the offer code westwing, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing. And now back to the show. Joining us now on the West Wing Weekly, my co-host Joshua Molina, who plays Will Bailey, makes his debut in the West Wing on this episode. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Do I get a pin? You can have all the pins you want. Fantastic. All right, let's start from the beginning. Josh, how did you get the role of Will Bailey? My friend gave it to me. (laughs) Did you have to audition? I did not, actually, which is a delight to have gotten a job on a show of this stature that was a giant hit without having to work for it. The extent to which I worked for it amounted to a single email that I wrote to Aaron just to quickly establish the framework of my career at this time. I had done Sports Night. I'd done a bunch of other things. Sports Night was the most significant job of my career. That ended, and I did a few other things, and then got a sitcom co-starring with Hank Azaria. It was called Imagine That. I was working on that show on the strength of the 13-episode pickup I bought my first house, my wife and I did, and I moved into it on October 31st, 2001, right in the thick of shooting this first season of Imagine That. And the day I moved in, literally the day, (laughs) it's Halloween, my wife's out of town, my pregnant wife is out of town with our four-year-old daughter trick-or-treating with our in-laws, or my in-laws, in Sacramento. I'm alone in my house having a moment of great satisfaction because I've bought a house, I've done it with my acting career, and that night, I get a call saying, don't come into work tomorrow. (laughs) I'm like, what? What do you mean? Uh, No, no big deal. NBC doesn't love this script. We're going to rework it, blah, blah, blah. Now, long story short, we never went back to work. (laughs) But it took six months for that to become clear. Never got paid for any more episodes. Uh, Was immediately plunged into financial anxiety and self-doubt and uh, career wreck as I was trying to figure out how to pay for this house. Somewhere in there, I noticed in Variety, industry publication, that Rob Lowe was considering leaving the West Wing. That early on? That long ago? 
Yeah, I mean, it was October 2001 that I moved into my house and things started to fall apart. So, you know, and it was October 2002 that my first episode of right. West Wing aired. So it wasn't yeah. that, yeah. So somewhere in there, I read about Rob Lowe. I immediately wrote an email to Aaron, who's been a friend of mine for a long time. And I wish I had it, but I remember essentially I said, I'm just pitching here. But if he does leave, how about a less famous, less good-looking actor who would be willing to work for less money? <laughs> Just literally the most shameless few lines I've ever written. I sent it off, and soon thereafter, I got a response from Aaron saying, you know, uh, Tommy and I were just talking about this. I don't know if I believed that then. I don't know that I believe it today. But I remember calling my wife and saying, Melissa, come over here. He wrote back. Look what it says. <laughs> and I had this just gleam in my eye, like, this could possibly happen. And then not long after that, I guess it turned out that Rob, in fact, had decided to leave the show. And uh, Aaron said, hey, come come meet me. I think he was living at the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills at that point. Hmm. And uh, I drove out there. I sat with Aaron. And he said, uh, look, here's what we're going to do. You're going to do six episodes of the show. And, you know, if you're happy and we're happy and it feels like a good fit, you'll be a regular on the West Wing. And then he said, now let me tell you a little bit about the character. And I remember at the time, uh, the character was going to be called Benjamin Beatty. I don't know why. I do know that Aaron had a uh, friendship and a working relationship with Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty has a son named Benjamin, mm. I believe, and objected to the name. <laughs> he didn't want Aaron to use it, so uh, ultimately the name was changed. And I remember Aaron telling me about this, uh, the young guy, you know, like, you know I, don't, I don't remember exactly what he said. And, and funny, there's a part of me, even as fantastic as this moment was, you would think I would have wanted to savor it. But I remember part of me just wanted to leave so I could call Melissa <laughs> and say, I've got six episodes of work on the West Wing. But uh, he kept filling me in. And I do remember one really funny moment where Aaron kind of slowed down and got really serious and in hushed tones said, now, the character's not Jewish. <laughs> I remember saying, dude, I don't care. <laughs> that's not important to me. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to tell me I'm not getting paid. I was worried there for a second. But I just thought that was funny. There's something sweet about that. Like, yeah. I might object. I was like, dude, I'm an actor. It's interesting that he that before he had shot anything with you, that he already knew that he wasn't Jewish. Yeah, I know we had that conversation. I have to say, in retrospect, looking back, I'm not even sure why he knew or why it was important. I don't know if it was ever made explicit. Well, I've thought about this. I've actually considered this generally, you know, knowing that you are Jewish and, and how your Judaism has, has been a part of your moments of the plot in Sports Night, you know, for example, that Aaron obviously has knows this about you as well and hasn't shied away from it in, in Jeremy Goodwin's character. But Will Bailey is explicitly not, I know. And I thought, why is that? And I thought, maybe is it is there a quota issue? You know, that he thought that there's already Josh Lyman. I think I may have made that joke to him. I think I said to him, oh, you got Josh and Toby right? and then uh, no more than two. I think I actually said something like that. And uh, maybe the answer was yes. I don't really remember <laughs> <laughs> that part's a blur. Or he needed some kind of Abrahamic balance for the fact that he has a Quaker playing a, a Jew in Brad, that he had to have a Jew playing a non-Jew. <laughs> Perhaps so. But uh, yeah, uh, that was, uh, you know, Aaron has been very, very good to me over the years. And this was one of those things to talk about a gift to have Aaron Sorkin yeah. writing 
creating a new role for you on the West Wing, this mega hit that was, you know, and I was a huge fan of the show. I mean, I loved it. <laughs> so this was this was a good day in the Molina household. I wonder if Emily Proctor's experience played into things to your benefit at all, you know, where they had someone who they really liked and who was woven into the stories. And, you know, there was a chance maybe to keep her, but then they lost her ultimately. And um, after investing so much into that character, you know, Emily Proctor then went to CSI, that it was built into the uh, pudding this time around. They said, okay, we're going to give you these episodes and we're going to get, you know, we're going to see how, how it goes. And if we like it, and if we like you, then we're going to make this thing permanent. Yeah. You know, it's funny when I think about it, too. I mean, it's a testament to uh, Aaron's and Tommy's belief in me. I can't believe NBC was thrilled with the idea. And first of all, I mean, I didn't replace Rob Lowe. Rob decided to leave. I didn't come on and play his part. You know, I mean... uh, Right. No, hardly. Just the same as Ainsley certainly wasn't a replacement for... Mandy. Right. So I'm always kind of, it's always feel slightly off when people say, how did you feel about replacing him? Or did he care? Or, you know, how did he treat you? Like, he's Rob Lowe. (laughs) You know, he was not concerned with me. He was doing his own thing and he was leaving. It couldn't have been nicer to me. But when I think about it from a network's point of view, you know, I'm sure I wasn't a blip on their radar. Right. All right. I'm going to play you the rest of the conversation I had with Rob Lowe. Hey. Hi. How's it going? How's everything, man? Good. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, uh, yeah. No, are you kidding? I can't let the greatest moment in West Wing history go by without, you know, weighing in. Come on. <laughs> awesome. Well, tell me, what, what do you remember of that day? Do you remember shooting that episode? Yeah, here's what I remember. It's funny, the West Wing for me is one of those things that I have such a strong attachment to. And it takes me back and I have so many feelings around it that I think for the regular person, it would kind of be like if you could go back to Christmas Eve of being 14, it would be really fun for about five minutes. And then it would, and then it would be really intense and weird. So. Right. And when Josh came on and you had to do your scenes together, the first scenes when you were rehearsing, did it take a lot of rehearsal to sort of groove? I know you said that it felt like he knew the material and the vibe, but in terms of figuring out the chemistry between Will and Sam? It was just one of those things, I don't know if it's a a tribute to the casting, to the writing, or to the actors, but it was one of those things where we showed up and it was all happening, you know, very little discussion. I think whatever, I mean, I think I was probably coming at it from a really great organic place of like, I don't know who this guy is, right, really, but he would know who Sam Seaborn was. Right. And so he's coming to something he doesn't know about as an actor, and I'm in an area where I'm like, who's this new guy? So you kind of already are starting from an organically honest, authentic place, I think. Right. Is it hard with the feeling of the 14-year-old on Christmas and it being fun for five minutes? Is it hard to talk about this time in your life? By the way, and it's good. You know, I hope nobody misinterprets it. It's all great intensity, but it's just overwhelming because, yeah. you know, part of you is like, I, you wish it could be that way again, which I think is the key to why the show continues to resonate and why it currently is having such a resurgence is you, you know, as a viewer, you go, I wish it could be that way again, both in terms of, you know, our actual government or turning on a network television show and seeing something like that. And it's no different for the actors, I don't think. I mean, you know, I look at it and go, I wish I was going to work every day on something like that. And it's just really not to be. So you enjoy it. It's great. Then, but then you gotta, you gotta live in in the present. Right. Is there anything else about when you first met Josh over that first episode that you want to share? 
I think I learned very early on from Whitford to give him a lot of shit. <laughs> you know that famous play Love Letters where it's people reading aloud, you know, letters of love. You know, it's ran forever. It's very, very famous. I would like to see a staged reading of Molina and Whitford's tweets to each other. <laughs> I think we would all like that. I mean, it's just too good. Those two should do a traveling show. So the main thing I remember was just the unrelenting, just tsunami of crap that Brad would give to Josh and Josh would give back. And I have to say, you know, if it were a heavyweight fight, I, I got to give Josh the victory on points. Wow. That is high praise. Isn't it? Mm -hmm. You don't want to tangle with Brad. You don't want to sure. tangle with him. Right. But so it was like that from the beginning. That dynamic was there right away. Yeah. And I think it probably goes back to when they were, do, you know, Josh got to be in the movie A Few Good Men and Brad didn't. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that explains a lot, actually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Rob, thank you so much. That was great. Oh, good. I'm, I'm so glad. There's so much going on, but when I heard this, I was like, oh, oh come on. I got it. Like, that's a, that's I a, that's really a, appreciate it. A famous moment in the show. And I love my Whistling Weekly swag and my little thing you sent me. I appreciate it. And, oh, awesome. Yeah, it's great. Keep up the good work. It's so much fun. I'm loving the podcast. It's all great. Thank you so much. It'd be fun to get John Wells on here someday and ask him how he felt about it all. That's what I was wondering was, obviously he'd worked with Aaron and Tommy before on Sports Night, but did you know John Wells? No, I didn't at all. And I'm excited to have him on in the future and also talk about the transition when Tommy and Aaron left, because John Wells in his time would be incredibly good to me in some very specific ways that I'm excited to share down the line. And he was a wonderful boss. And, and, and I bet he will be candid. Uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me, nor offend me, if there was resistance to the idea of bringing me on board. I mean, this was a hit show. There were all sorts of names and people that I think would raise eyebrows in a positive way at a network that would have been happy to be on the show. So right. this was a gift to me. How long until you felt the effects of that gift in terms of when you got the job? You know, we didn't have Twitter at that time, so can't broadcast immediately to everyone. I got this job on the West Wing. But certainly when your episode actually aired, did you hear from people? You know, the, I don't even really remember. What I remember is, I remember I like to read anything. If there's a review, I want to read it. If people are writing about it on the boards, I want to read it. Because <laughs> I get a kick out of it. I'm curious. And I have the skin of a rhino. Like nothing is going to throw me. So I do remember, it's funny, having talked to them, I remember TWOP television without pity and going there because they would do these funny uh, they do a synopsis of every episode and then they had message boards and people really told you what they thought there and just one comment that stuck out that i absolutely loved was uh just a reference to me is that horrible little man who replaced rob Lowe, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which i got a kick out of how about when the episode aired how did you watch it did you have a party i'm sure i did not have a party and i don't remember all right. I, I mean, I just don't. It's funny. I, I remember making the episode and uh, shooting it and all the specifics. I don't remember. I'm guessing I sat and watched it with my wife. Maybe you were working. I mean, maybe the reason why you don't remember it is because at that point, by the time it aired, you would be somewhere in that six episode run. Yeah. And I may well have been working when it first aired. I want to assure people I won't talk about myself this much in 
coming episodes, lest they feel that the entire endeavor has now taken a horrible left turn <laughs> into me holding court about myself. Let me ask you about, maybe you've already answered this question previously in this conversation. Well, maybe I'll do a better job this time. This was now the somethingeth time that you had read words written by Aaron Sorkin. You've talked a little bit about how Will Bailey is a little different from you, but were you concerned at all with finding a lane for Will Bailey that was distinct from Jeremy Goodwin in Sports Night? Yeah, that's a fair question and a good question. I don't remember being too concerned about it. I'm sure it flitted through my mind because they share certain traits. But one, nobody watched Sports Night. So that took the pressure off <laughs> worrying that masses of people were going to say, he's just like Jeremy. Mm -hmm. And two, I felt the major share of that burden lay with Aaron. Mm -hmm. And I do feel that there are similarities, but they feel they always felt to me as distinct characters. I don't spend a lot of time, you know, I'm not the kind of person who would have, uh, the kind of actor who would write down, this is what Jeremy's like, his character, and this is what Will's like. Here's how they're different. So it's not like I gave it great thought. And when I look back and I watch this first episode, that was something that went through my mind. I wanted to see how it felt. And to me, they feel very different. They do as well to me. There's an energy level and a neurosis and an anxiety and sort of underlying sort of insecurity slash madness to Jeremy that I don't see in the much better functioning on top of things type A without all the baggage Will Bailey that right. I see in this episode. Yeah, to me, at least in the time that we spend with Jeremy on sports night, he feels like a junior guy. Will Bailey comes across immediately as a boss. Just a second. Darren and Sharon, where are you? All right, this is good, but don't ever use the words waiting period. I thought the point of the statement was to support a stricter waiting period for handguns. Uh, the point is to get one. Waiting period sounds like an inconvenience. Keeping guns away from felons is an issue of national necessity. Karen, if you call Yeah, I agree. I think Jeremy is younger in several different meanings of the word. Right. He's less fully formed. He's less mature. He's less ready for life in the professional workplace. Right. And I didn't mean to... My question was not because I felt there was any danger of them having any overlap. It's really more at the fact that there is no overlap, that they do seem like such distinct characters. I was just trying to figure out, you know, you've got the same face, you got the guy writing the same words. How did that happen? How did you manage to pull that off? Yeah. No, I think it's it's really, it's uh, all credit to Aaron, who wrote not two incredibly dissimilar characters, you know, this guy's a producer, and this guy's a gunslinger who's looking for revenge and his slaughter. You know, it's like, right, you know, yeah. not incredibly dissimilar. It could be an issue, but I think he wrote Will Bailey in a subtly different vein from Jeremy. Mm -hmm. Having done so many episodes of Sports Night, how did this compare in terms of the difficulty level? That's funny. I got a couple people threw that question at me on Twitter, and... I think I would describe them both as not difficult. I, I don't know. It's just, I'm not easily daunted. So I wasn't, you know, terrified or scared. I'm sure yeah, I had... One foot of real estate was in place. Yes, I was definitely in the right... Uh, I was in game mode and I was in the, in the right headspace. Frankly, because I had trained for this moment. They're throwing two-minute drills at the president. I'd done 45 episodes of Sports Night and 750 performances of A Few Good Men. So I, you know, I didn't go to acting school but I, I trained in the Aaron Sorkin Conservatory and it served me well when I uh, stepped onto the West Wing set. I was, you know, I was confident. I'm sure I had 
first day nerves or uh, I am human, but I felt prepared. And when the writing is great and the other actors are great and you have a great director, it just isn't difficult. It was joy. It was absolute joy to step onto that set and to work with those people. So difficult is when the writing's really bad and you still want people to like what it is you're making. And that's when, you know, when, you, when you're in the wrong gear and you're running faster and faster, but the, the, it's just not taking. And when the writing's great, you know, everything clicks and you just, it's pretty easy. You just let it happen. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Have you ever asked Aaron about his own speech writing? You're coming in playing a speech writer. I was wondering if you'd ever... There's this conversation that happens between Will and Sam. You've ghosted for senators, movie stars, I think the king of Belgium one time. Do you say anything? No. Why? Speech writers don't do that. Yeah. Of course, I've wondered many times. I'll watch a speech from a presidential candidate and say, Jesus, this guy should hire Aaron Sorkin. And then I thought, surely somebody's... Maybe he has. Tri- people have tried, I'm sure. And I, I wonder if anyone has actually successfully done that. Do you know if Aaron's ever written or ghostwritten for a candidate? I don't know the answer to that. You know what's the truth, too? I never had the slightest doubt that I was going to be regular on the show. Really? Yeah, I, and I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know if it's like my incredible confidence. I think it always felt to me like that was the deal. You know, really, what he's saying is, if you suck, <laughs> you know, don't say, "Hey, you promised me you're going to be like," you know, like it felt like the way this was meant to be. Or there may there may have been an element. I wish I could remember the exact chronology. It may have been an element where it wasn't a hundred percent sure that Rob was leaving yet. Right. Although I think it was resolved by then. It certainly seems like it. The plotting in this episode is really, we're gaining steam very quickly, setting up the fact that he'll offer to run for Horton Wilde. He'll make this promise to Kay Wilde and the giving of the tie. I mean, it really feels the fact that it's not just a campaign. There's also this other detail of he's also a great speechwriter. Right. There was that. I mean, I guess also when Aaron said that at that first meeting, look, and after six, if you're happy and we're happy, what he was saying is if they're happy. <laughs> Like the odds that I was going to say, you know what? Doesn't feel like a great fit to me. I'd like to go. <laughs> we're zero. So I think what he's just saying was, we have an out. Like we're not committing to you now that you're a regular. And, you know, we'll see how you do. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap it up, right? Thanks so much for listening to this episode. From here on out, things are going to be different. That is true. But not like this episode was different. We won't talk about me that much. Although I enjoyed it. This was like a nice little, like, uh, this is your life moment for me. It was kind of you. <laughs> I appreciated your asking people to weigh in. I'll be talking about you this much. Okay. I'll be Duncan. <laughs> Come join us next time. Won't you? We'll be joined by a special guest. I'm Clark Gregg, and I played Agent Mike Casper on The West Wing. Woo! Agent Casper. For episode 407. Agent Colsper. <laughs> exactly. Until then, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, thewestwingweekly.com. Yeah, you can. You can find a cavalcade of lovely West Wing Weekly merchandise at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. Hanukkah's around the corner. Christmas is uh, soon after. Kwanzaa also coming up. You're going to want to festoon your tree and your friends with (laughs) shirts and pins and hats and lovely things from our podcast. This episode was produced by me, along with Josh, with help from Zach McNeese and Margaret Miller. The West Wing Weekly is a proud member of Radiotopia. Thanks to everybody who made donations. We're blown away by the generosity of our listeners. Radiotopia 
is, of course, a selection of the finest podcasts in the land. It can be accessed at radiotopia.fm. It's made possible by PRX. Okay. Okay. What's What's next? next? Radiotopia. Thanks to AdZerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia.